So, typically, you know, Nick would go through and count the heads. I can do that for you, Nick. No. <laughs> anyway, so my wife and I uh, and family, her on her uh, on the in-law side, uh, we went to Sights and Sounds. And uh, it was the first time I've been there. When I heard about it, I kept forgetting. I was like, what, where are we going? Sights and Sounds. And it was like a whole year, year and a half. They were still talking about it. People were like, where are you going? I was like, Sights and Sounds. And then I remember Pastor Mike's like, so what are you guys in? I was like, I have no idea. I just know we're going. <laughs> and so we get there. And first, it was a fantastic facility uh, in uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, I think it's Lancaster. And uh, yes. And we went there. And I was just first in awe, because I just came with it, well, you know, we'll see. I get there, the building was fantastic, the setup was fantastic. When you got inside the building, when they actually, they did it on David, which was, it went on for three hours, it was, you didn't even know it was going on for three hours, it's fantastic. And the way they had it set up, for those who haven't been there, you're literally part of the stage, because they have animals, you know, they had real animals participating in this. When you talk about a shepherd, they had real animals coming down the aisleways. They had guys on real horses going up on the stage. It was fantastic. So if any of you ever get the opportunity to do it, I would encourage you on to that. But what was pretty awesome was the music, the soundtrack to it afterwards. And, you know, I went and immediately downloaded it and so on. And my brother-in-law was listening to it and, and parent-in-laws listening to it. And I've been listening to it continually to the point my wife's like, okay, I love it, but you know what? <laughs> You and your daughter, <laughs> let's listen to something else. But there's just different songs that stuck to me. And, and one of them was when they had the guy who played David sang, The Lord is My Shepherd. And it's the way he sang it was just so awesome. And he just sang, The Lord is My Shepherd. Uh, I shall not want anything with you. And obviously, along with the scripture. But then in part of the songs, they shifted some things. And I was just thinking about that as the song just kept hitting me and just listening to his voice. Is the Lord my shepherd? Do I want any? Do I only want God? And when he said, your goodness and mercy follows me, I said, do I see that? Do we see that the Lord's goodness and mercy follows us? Is he really our shepherd? And along the song, he says, I am after your heart. And I had the question, am I after your heart, Lord? What does my life look like that shows, even in little increments, that I'm after your heart? And I found myself singing a song. You know, Betsy was over, play date with Amherst uh, yesterday. And uh, I don't know why the song, I, again, I played it again. I was taking a shower, I played it again. And then I heard those guys banging on the door. I heard you after my heart. <laughs> it was funny. But, you know, I asked you, you know, is the Lord your shepherd? Do you see his goodness and mercy following you? Are you after his heart? And I think as we go through the book of Proverbs, that's what we're seeing in the principles of Proverbs. We're seeing God's heart on everything. And I just want to take us back just real quick to a piece, which is really the statement for entire Proverbs, which is Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that fear is that sort of that awe and reverence for God. And there's an actual fear sometimes. We just fear, Lord, I fear punishment from you. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, too. But we're talking about the actual, he's holy, 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 and we're just in awe. This is a holy, holy, holy God. 
And in Proverbs 3.19, it says, by wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundation. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. And we know in John 1.3, it says, all things were made through him being Jesus. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. So we get an understanding in that, that if he made it by wisdom and all things were made to Jesus, then Jesus is wisdom. And that's confirmed in 1 Corinthians 1.30 when he says, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So God confirms that Jesus is the very wisdom. So I just wanted to set that stage for the mere fact that as we dive into Proverbs 6, 1 through 19, we are taking on more of Jesus. It is wisdom. It is God's heart. God gave us on the cross, the best of what he had to offer in Jesus Christ for our salvation. So when we take a look at these principles, keep in mind that these are revealing God's heart through Jesus on how we glorify him in our community. So in this half of the chapter, I believe Pastor Cleet will be uh, preaching on the second half next week. God speaks through the writer Solomon. Three areas of life in which to employ wisdom which strengthens our community. One is money, and an aspect of money, because you could spend months preaching just on money alone. Sluggardness, which is laziness, and community directly itself. And if you notice what he does, as one commentator says, he uses all these negative examples to give us positive wisdom. And so as we're going through this, be thinking about this is what the Lord hates. Why do we know that? Because if you go to 19, he tells you all this stuff really, one thing to keep in mind, it sows discord. It disrupts the community. It disrupts your family. He tells you he hates it. It's an abomination to him. That means it it turns his stomach. So what's the solution? Write what we're doing now. And we'll get to more details of what that solution will look like, the tentacles from that as well. So let's dive in. Proverbs 6, 1 through 5. And the way I have that broken up is the money part is Proverbs 6, 1 through 5. Um, 6 through 11 is the sluggardness. And then 12 through 19 is the community part, just so you understand where I'll be, okay? And I have a timer on here that keeps me going, ah, there we go. (laughs) And I have intermission planned too, so don't worry. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. What is their saying? The argument, don't go, don't go cosign someone else's debt. 
whether it's a friend, neighbor, stranger, or whoever, or family member. Now, keep in mind, these are principles, so there might be exceptions to the rule because you've done your due diligence in, in praying for discernment, but he's telling you, and he emphasizes this over and over again, and we'll get to that. There's five other verses in the book of Proverbs that talks about don't take on someone else's debt. What that may, mainly means is this. You're co-signing for someone. They call it surete, S-U-R-E-T-Y, which is you're taking someone else's placement, whether it's in court or whether it's for debt or maybe you're putting your house up for them or money up for them. Either way, you're putting yourself and jeopardizing your family up for them. And the Lord says, don't do it. And as it says in verse 1 and 2, if you've done it, you're in danger of being trapped for someone else's debt. Now, I mean, <laughs> some of you have probably already done it. You may even ask your parents to do it, or you've done it for someone else, or you're in the middle of it right now. What should you do? And let's just walk through this, and, and let's see. Get out of it. <laughs> what he, he says, get out of it. Co-signing on someone else's debt means that if they default on it, and don't pay it, the lenders can default on you. And there's more behind it, so bear with me. Some of you may be thinking, I've already done this, like I said, or I'm in the middle of it right now. Let's just pay close attention to this. So if you go on the FTC, that's Federal Trade Commission, they're the consumer advocacy group for unfair business practices and wrongdoings against consumers. And this is what they say. They even say this without even declaring anything to Jesus Christ. Notice to co-signer, you are being asked to guarantee this debt. Think carefully before you do. If the borrower doesn't pay the debt, you will have to. Be sure you can afford to pay if you have to and that you, won't, and that you want to accept this responsibility. That's great wisdom and common grace the Lord has given to them. If you're going to do this, make sure you can afford to do it. Make sure you can afford to handle that load. Or else, it goes on to say, you may have to pay the full amount of the debt if the borrower does not pay. You may also have to pay late fees, collection costs, which increase this amount. The creditor can collect this debt from you without first trying to collect from the borrower. That means if they choose, they can skip past the person that you put the debt for and go directly to you. It's their choice. The creditor can use the same collection methods against you that can be used against the borrower, such as suing, garnishing your wages, etc. If this debt is ever in default, the fact may become a part of your credit record. I used to work for uh, a collections company back when I was in college. And at the time, I didn't realize it was very sinister ways they would collect people. And they, we would call and we'd call and we would tell people we we're going to get them fired. We'd call and tell them we're going to take their house. But really, from a legal standpoint, if you just look it up, Based on the size of the debt, we'll determine what the legalities of what they can and can't do. If it's just a few thousand or several hundred, they can't take your house. They can't put a lien against your house. It depends on what it is. But we prey on the fact that people didn't know these things. And sometimes people would be scared. And the, the thought process was the ends justifies the means. If we scared someone enough, then they'd go and pay it. But that's not the way the Lord would have us do it, but that's what we're in right now. You're putting yourself and family at risk. Like an animal in a trap, you should do everything possible 
to get free. As he says in here, go to whoever wrote the loan, the lender, whether it's the bank or car dealership or whoever it is, and negotiate and get out of the contract. That's what he tells you. Get out of it. You should ask yourself then, why getting out of guaranteeing someone else's debt? Doesn't God tell us to be generous with our money? Doesn't he tell us to be generous? See, this is where it comes down to we can look at pieces and want to make Jesus all about that piece and not take all the rest of the discernment that goes along with that. It's like someone would say, hey, God's about unity. He is. But if you read in Romans, it's unity in the truth, which is Jesus. That means that when we're all putting aside self and saying, I'm just going to be obedient to God's word, there's unity. Unity doesn't come because we all just kind of say, we'll just agree to disagree. No, it's because of the truth of God's word. So we have to take all of it. So let's look at this. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 15, 1 to 11. I'm going to stay here for just a moment on this because some very unique nuggets out of this. It's something that I came across a long time in a study. It was brought back up again by a commentary. I'm like, well, yeah, let's go back to that. So the Lord describes how he wants things done in the economy. So let's look at this, 15, 1 through 11. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of release. Every creditor shall release what has lent to his neighbor. <clears throat> he shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it. But whoever of yours is with your brother, whatever of yours is with your brother, you, your hand shall release it. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord of your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command to you. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but you shall not, they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, and any of our towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year is here, the year of release is near, and your eye grudgingly looks on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and cry the Lord against you. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you'll be guilt, guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all your, uh, that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in your land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. You know, we, we could spend a lot of time in this, but let's think about this. The Lord first says, this is what you do. You lend out, you don't charge interest to anyone in your land. What do we do in this country? We charge interest for everything. This is out of political statement, people. This is what we do. The Lord already tells us how do we build our nation. We charge interest to everyone. And he says then, after, in the seventh year, forgive that debt. And he even warns the person, hey, if someone comes to you in the seventh year, oh, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to get out. You're just going to try to borrow, and then you're going to get out of it. He goes, don't grudge against it. The Lord will take care of that. <clears throat> Just give to him freely. He gives us commands. And then he also says, when he says that, he says, because there should be no poor amongst you. Then he goes on to say, but there will always be a poor amongst you. What's the difference? 
What's the difference between when he says there'll be no poor among you and then when he says there shall always be poor among you? It's the command that we don't follow. If, you, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to all his commandments that I command you today. Our poverty in this country, I would dare say, and around the world where he's given where it's milk and honey, is because we don't follow the commands of God. We don't do what he asks us to do. He's given us plenty. And he tells us how to do it. He doesn't just say, open up and just give everything. No, there's specifics. You can go in the book of Thessalonians. You can go in Corinthians. You can go throughout the New Testament. He'll tell you about when to lend and when not to lend. Even when we were studying the book of Timothy, as men, it was talking about widows and what widows you should help and what widows you should not help and should be working themselves. The Lord is specific about dealing with these things. And we get caught into our heart and just, no, we see someone needs to give, we just give. Now, I'm not saying there's always different things going out there. I'm just saying if we look at this, the Lord is saying he's given us plenty. There should not be poor amongst us. But we don't follow his commands. And then what does he say to the nations? Don't lend. No, don't borrow, but lend. And you'll rule over many nations. What do we do as a country, people? That's what I'm talking about when we look at the word of God and we get an understanding. We actually, as a country, we sell our debt. We package it in different types of assets, and other countries purchase it, treasury bonds and what have you. We do that. So in actuality, many people own our debt outside of our country. So now we are a slave to them. Again, what I'm pointing out is that the Lord gives us a roadmap for how we do things. And when we do the exact opposite, we wonder why we're where we're at. So God wants us to be generous, but he gives us a roadmap on how to do it. God was teaching them the principle of generosity so their needs would be met. But this is a warning in Proverbs when it says, don't put up security for your neighbor because when God tells us, calls us to repentance through Jesus, he is calling us to a personal responsibility of our sins and repentance and providing Jesus to cleanse us. Then we are called to confirm our election in Christ, the fruit of us being truly transformed in his likeness. We are called to personal responsibility. What am I getting at? If you co-sign for someone that the lender is already considering a risk, you are being irresponsible and encouraging irresponsibility in your neighbor. That's what I'm getting at. I'm getting at if we want to love the neighbor the way God wants us to love them, we have to do more than just give lip service, look at someone on the surface and go, oh, he asked for it, I'll give it to him. Because how do we know we're loving them the way God wants us to love them? There are some times where maybe a hard talk you may have to have with your brother. Brother, I'd love to help you, and I've been there. But perhaps some of the choices I've seen you make is why you're there. And maybe instead of the new car, you just have to take this clunker, and I'll work with you. We'll find the best. We'll get the best we can, whatever we can do. And you just take this clunker for a while until you're in a place with your credit. You know, there are means to build your credit. I used to do that all the time in the mortgage industry with people. People that were in bankruptcy, I'd take them out and help them build their credit. It wasn't a difficult thing in this country, but it required patience, and it took time. And that's the hard part. I don't have patience. I had a family member co-sign for me on a day. A long time, I looked back, and said, that was a poor choice. 
because I jacked them up because I was irresponsible with it. And so it's not that God's not saying be generous. He's saying use caution and listen to what he's telling you through these examples and be generous according to what he says, not according to what you want. And in this particular case, it's not being generous to co-sign on someone else's debt. It's not. Because maybe we haven't done the due diligence to really help them in the place they really needed to be helped. And maybe we ought not ask our parents or someone in our life to co-sign our debt because maybe we ought to get on our knees and pray for discernment or ask our brother and sister, what do you see in me, and take greater responsibility for why we're there. Now, are there exceptions? I don't want to act like, you know, everyone's just, life is just good and, you know, there aren't exceptions. There are people that have been growing up in some horrible situations and have to be walked through it, but nonetheless, we still have to walk them through it, not just take the quick fix. Does that make sense? Don't take the quick fix. Seek discernment so you can really help your child or your brother and sister because they're all in the community. So this is all, if you do wrong by them, you set a bad example for the rest of the community. You will sow discord because as other people see you sign off and do whatever, that will impact them. This is why when I go outside and I see someone and they ask for money, there are times I fly out and say no and just walk away. And you go, that looks cruel. If I'm not willing to invest a few moments to figure out if there's something the Lord's given discernment to know what I'm helping with or not, then I'm not just going to hand the money. I'll just rather say no and look cruel and walk away. Because what if I just gave that person money, he had the shakes, and maybe it was apparent they were struggling with something, and he died the next day off of the money I gave him because he went back to whatever it is he was struggling with. I didn't help him. I just put the nail in the coffin. So if I'm not willing to invest time in that moment, then it's better for you to say no and walk on. Does that make sense? No matter how cruel it seems. One of the things he goes on to say, he gives you examples of what it looks like to get out of it real quick. He says, a gazelle. <laughs> um, Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter. So I looked up a gazelle. A gazelle can run in short bursts up to 60 miles an hour. But they can't sustain it. So the cheetah is still the fastest because they can sustain their 50-mile-an-hour run for a long period of time. But short bursts of 60 miles an hour, that's pretty quick. So he's like a gazelle. Get out of it. The Lord's telling you. He's giving you an example. Hey, in case you don't understand... Look at the gazelle, how fast he runs. That's how fast I want you to get out of this dead. <laughs> or like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So those are bird hunters. So when a bird gets away, have you ever seen someone trying to capture a bird and the bird gets away? Just like that. And he even tells you, he says, don't close your eyelids. Don't go to sleep until you get out of it. The Lord is saying this is of urgency and the most important thing right now in your life. Whatever you co-signed on, you better go and get yourself out of it. Now, I would say unless you can financially handle it. And I, you know, there are people when they might be in a position where, hey, it's okay. If Even then, you still want to ask, is that the best thing for that person? Have you guided them to the word of God the best way? Or are you just co-signing on something? Because that's the easy thing to do. Something to consider. Take decisive action and get out of it. And then God repeats himself in five other verses. 
Proverbs 22, 26 through 27. Do not be the one who shakes hands in a pledge or puts up security for debts. If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. God's letting you know. You putting up for someone else's debt, this is going to jack up your family. This is a family disruption, and it's a community disruption in showcasing how you really walk someone in Christ. Proverbs 11.15, Proverbs 17.18, Proverbs 20.16, Proverbs 27.13. When the God repeats something over and over and over again, that is of great importance. Take heed. You guys with me? The Bible has a lot to say about money, even lending and co-signing. In loving our neighbor well, we don't want anything to prevent us from loving others the way God intends us to. Freely, wholeheartedly, just like God loves us. He loves us the way he wants to, not the way we want, right? Which is pure and perfect. The only surety, the only place where we want someone to step in is for, our, for our debt is where? Exactly. The debt we have in our sin. That is a proper exchange, according to God who loves us. We know we deserve nothing, right? <laughs> That's the right exchange. We're in our sin. We're dead. We're hellbound. No way to get out of it. God, who created us, is the one who provides a solution to protect us from his, his holy, holy, holy wrath, and that is Jesus Christ. And Christ took on our debt, and we took on his righteousness if you repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus. Does that make sense? It's something I've been wrestling with, like, wow. That actually requires me to actually spend more time looking and knowing my brother to truly help them. And how often do I do that? I digress. Let's move on. Sluggard, which is 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise without having any chief officer or ruler. She prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, oh, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Something about that word sluggard just puts a smile on my face. <laughs> First, what is a sluggard? Well, a sluggard is a lazy, sleepy, slow-moving person. A sluggard is likely to oversleep, and even snooze through class or work. As one commentator points out, the life model for a slugger is, don't rush me. Don't rush me. In Proverbs 26, 14, it says, as the door turns on its hinges, so does a slugger on its bed. Just moving slowly, everything's all good. As a commentator also put it, the life of a sluggard is laziness, making the soft choice, losing one opportunity after another, day by day, moment by moment, until he lies there helpless in a wasted life. As I read that, I thought, can I relate to that? 
we all seen a little bit of a sluggard in our ways, in different ways, in all of us? And one of the things I want you to think about when we talk about a sluggard, think about it in terms of how we live life, but also, most importantly, how we live out Jesus and our sluggardness, what we take for granted, what we really pursue. There are many verses on sluggards and throughout Proverbs. There are a few that stands out about the sluggard. Verse 9, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? The slugger is content with no decision. <laughs> when are you going to get up? <sighs> oh, no. Oh, Proverbs 21, 25. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. The sluggard doesn't like working and refuse to work. I thoroughly believe while there's all different types of circumstances, people that are mentally down and so on, I don't think myself or us realize that just like in Corinth when Paul was dealing with a culture of frowning upon work, that overall there's a culture like that here in our country. And both for the wealthy, for the middle class, and for the poor, there's a struggle, there's a commonality across the board we're seeing. And so we get confused when we look with our flesh instead of turning to the word of God to get discernment and truly walking with that person. The sluggard, Proverbs 26, 15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out. Oops. Sorry. <laughs> Why don't I tell you sometimes? The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. So here you are. You're going to get the food. No. It's just too much. He's that lazy that when it even comes to getting food out of the plate, doesn't want to do it. Got to think about it. What does that mean? They start and they won't finish anything. There are people that start things and they never finish anything. The slugger can even bring back the food to his mouth, as we talked about. Proverbs 26:16. The slugger is wiser in his own eyes than the seven men who can answer sensibly. He considers himself wise. You ever been there? You've met people, they're in a specific place, and hey, listen, you're not considering yourself better, you're just trying to talk them up or point them in a direction, and everything is, I know, I know, I know, I know. And they won't listen to the thing. And the pushback, and when you see them, it's always, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And their life never changes, it stays that way. And I would say that in our own lives, we've seen pieces of that, right? Where people have tried to speak wisdom to us, and we ignored it. Sort of that sluggard mentality. We know best. We're wise. I would say, again, ultimate wisdom is the word of God. Proverbs twenty-two, thirteen. the sluggard says, There's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. He won't deal with reality. The breakdown of the particular verse says this shows how far a sluggard will go to avoid work. But what will actually devour him is not the imaginary lion of his excuses, but the reality of poverty. That's what will hit him, the Lord saying in the end. It's not your, oh, yeah, I, I can't go out there. It's dangerous. 
And then when he's in a poverty situation, that's what's going to eat him up from his choices. Won't deal with reality. Won't deal with reality. What does the writer describe as a remedy to the sluggard? Verse 6, go to the ant, consider her ways and be wise. Godly wisdom is saying, go learn from an ant. (laughs) That's interesting. As the commentator put it, it's doubly humbling to go to ant school because the Hebrew word for ant is in the feminine gender. That's why you hear them saying her and so on. But we guys need this because we are too often passive what he says. We're so accustomed to being wait and see, hang back, critical of everything else, guard it that we don't even feel the shame of it anymore. And he goes on to say, a church filled with men energized, men working, men engaged, men with intensity, men of conviction and action, that's exactly what the world needs to see in us today. You think so, men? Because we live in a time where the world is telling men exactly what a man is to be. And I fear they're kind of neutering the men. So the women are left with having to take up the load. What do we know about the ant? Well, quick side note, the ant, there's 12,000 different species of ants. They typically can, they can live from two weeks up to 30 years, depending on the ant species. They can lift up to 50 times their size. They are very strong. Tell I read up on ants, did you? <laughs> After this, I'll forget all this. <laughs> but if we go to verse 7, what does it say? The ant is without any chief officer or ruler, which is true. They don't have a ruler. The queen ant lays eggs. She doesn't rule over them they each automatically have their own internal motivation to do what they've been tasked to do. They even have, ants even have something called storage ants. So they prepare for a time when there's a drought or when they are without as much food. So what ants do when they grab the food, they turn it into a liquid in their body, and there are ants in the colony. All their job is to be the storage ants. They just stay in the colony. They take the liquid from the other ants, and they house it in their body. So when there's a time of famine, those storage ants come out, and I got you guys. That's what they do. Each person, each ant, I'm sorry, each responsible ant in their role, they're motivated to do exactly what they've been tasked to do. Unlike the slugger, the ant is motivated. Verse 8, she prepares her bread in the summer. Well, what do we know? In the wintertime, ants either, you know, there's a hibernation state for some of them, or they go in places where they can warm in our houses or under a rock or, you know, in trenches. Summer's when they're getting their work done. So check this out. Ants nap 250 times a day, only for about a minute. That's equivalent to four hours and 48 minutes a day. The rest of the day, they're working. So in a 24-hour day, they're working 18, 19 hours a day, each with their internal motivation doing what they've been tasked to do. So all the hours 
they are working hard. Verse 8, the rest of it, and gathers her fruit in the harvest. The ants work today for tomorrow also, just like I told you about the storage ants. That's what they do. So they work for the day, and they also prepare for tomorrow. So I ask you, in verse 10, it says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. But the little adds up to a lot. Because in verse 11, he says, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man, destruction of your life. So I'm going to hold off on a question for a second. I just want to read this other part that I have written down. If you think about it from our walk in Christ, we're in danger of becoming sluggard, sluggards as Christians, always with excuses, always waiting. We're critical of everything else around us, but not ourselves. We believe we're very wise, and but all along just become careless in our passion for Christ. If you think about it, how are you preparing for the unknown, the time of discontent, this time of spiritual attack, the time when you have less, the time when you have more? How are you living out what Colossians 3.16 calls us to do? Let the word dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We look at the life of the ant and apply that to our Christian faith. Wow. Always in the word. Always in the word. A few naps here and there. Storing up the word, prepare us for what comes tomorrow so we have the armor of God. Or as one commentator put it, are you exploiting today as an opportunity from God to become wisely prepared for tomorrow? And that's the biggest part I want you to take away from this, is our sluggardness in our faith walk with Christ. Everyone shakes their head at different times. Oh, I love Christ, I love Christ. What's the fruit of it onto Christ? How do we encourage each other and hold each other accountable for being in the word? Ephesians 5, 18 says, do not be drunk with wine, but be drunk with the spirit. So we, when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus, we get the Holy Spirit in us. So we walk by way of the spirit and we confirm by dwelling in the word of God where we need to go. Spirit, word of God, they work together. The same spirit that's in you is the same spirit that spoke the word of God through the prophets and disciples before us. That's how we find wisdom. It's not just, I prayed about it, and I got wisdom. I prayed about it, I searched the scriptures to dwell in the scriptures, and then I got my marching orders. Or I talked to another brother to help me search the scriptures. But it's easy to default and say, I prayed about it, everything's good, and I go on about my business. We should be in fear that we may be signing off on something that God doesn't want us to sign off on. This is the armor of God. Focus on the main thing. Avoid the sluggardness in your walk with God. Let's move forward. Last one, community. So in Corinthians 12, 12, just as the body... First, let me read the 12 through 19 real quick. A worthless person... A wicked man goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. 
Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devise wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord amongst brothers. You know, when the Lord says stuff like that, that's when we ought to stop and really meditate on it. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, he says, just as the body is one, has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, as a local church body, if we are focused as Christ as the head, then as we talked about before, then we have our, what, real unity, right? A community focused on Christ's commands. But as he tells us, there's disunity and community destruction with the ways that he points out. There's one statement, and we've already, I've already brought it up. There's one statement in two verses, 14 and 19, that sums it up. And what is that statement again? Sowing discord. You see that in 14 and in 19. The Lord repeats it again. He hates this. To sow is to plant a seed. A discord is a disagreement between people. So what a sowing discord is, you are constantly stirring up stuff between people. It could be directly, it could be behind their back. Let's go a step further. So what people is this person sowing discord among? Verse 19, it says, brothers in Christ. But if you go to the NIV version, which I think better fills this out, it says, a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So this is about brothers within the body of Christ. So this is a person disrupting the local church community. Have you ever sown discord? I have. Grumble. Talk behind someone's back. You tell someone something and say, Oh, something that Nick preached about a long time ago. I have concerns. I have concerns. You never go directly to that person, but you have concerns with 30 other people to tell them about, about that person. Now all their eyes are at that person. You've just disrupted their body. Their focus is supposed to be on Jesus. That's what we're supposed to help our brother and sister to, not towards what you see in someone else. Unless, if that person's in sin, there's a proper way that he tells us to do this in Matthew 18 and 15 and in Titus 3.10. And this person is not only sowing discord, they're aggressive about it. Usually the person, as I said, acts as if they're just innocent about things. What else do we know about this type of person? Well, what does it say in verses 12 through 15? They're worthless. Now, I want to take a stop real quick. The Hebrew word for this is belial, B-E-L-I-A-L. I may not be pronouncing it well. But actually, in Judaism of Paul's day, that was a characteristic of Satan. Worthless and treacherous. The Lord is telling you a person who sows discord is worthless. Same characteristics as Satan. That is not <laughs> the camp you want to share characteristics with. A wicked person. What's a wicked person? Always up to no good. 
Sometimes I call people who are always seeking drama, too. You ever known people like that? We all have been a version of that. They're never satisfied unless there's drama in their life. They love to complain. They love there's always something going on. And when there's a moment of quietness, something's not right. They're always seeking something. We all have a version of that, right? Some of us wear more on our sleeve than others. Crooked speech, foul, blasphemous stuff against the Lord. But I love Jesus. Devises evil, always figuring out a way to set someone else up for a fall. Always doing something to glorify themselves as God. What can also sin? We can also sin in little ways that are huge. Let's look at this. Verse 13. Acts of nonverbal communication. A wink. You ever seen that in the church community? Someone winks over, even maybe doing a sermon. Someone winks over, you're like, well, they could be winking because they agree with something, or it could be winking because of something they've said. But either way, a wink, a signaling. Appointing that person. I think we all have been guilty of that, right? And what is the Lord saying? He hates that. He just flat out hates it. 2019, it's an abomination to him. That means that the moment we're sowing discord, without Christ, thank goodness we have Christ, we're an abomination to God. I'll, I'll tell you, I was, in this, I was in a church once, and so they were in a city, they moved to a different city, they, I've told the story before, but I won't go over specific names, actually humorous, and they were trying to remove the name of the city from the church, and they were also going to remove the name Baptist and just go to something like, I don't know, Cross Bible Church or something like that, and the people that have been there for 40, 50 years, you would have thought they just said, Jesus isn't real. <laughs> They'd have these big meetings and one guy in particular was, a, was an attorney. He got all the names on the list. There's a couple thousand people at this church. And he sent them personal letters. And in those letters, he said, I'm not trying to convince you, but here are the facts. I'm like, oh, but you left out the facts of what the pastor said. That's pretty interesting. Later on, I found him from a fellow pastor. He goes, that was my dad who was at that church. He put his hand down. <laughs> and he wasn't pleased about it either, or what his dad did. But this, and then some of them said, so if we remove the name Baptist, we're not going to baptize anymore? I thought it was about the word of God, not about the name of the church. But that's how it gets, people. And we hang on to things. It exposed a lot of vulnerability into Christians who had been walking with God for 40, 50 years, ready to tear apart everyone. Shows where their heart is. I call it building your own boy band. This is my song, and you're going to sing my song with me. Build my little boy band out. God shows his dislike for this behavior by repeating himself in 16, verses 16 through 19. And I think the last verse sums it up. He hates one who, dis who sows discord amongst the community. Haughty eyes. That's an arrogance. Someone who's arrogant can't tell them anything. That sows discord. A lying tongue. That sows discord. Hands that shed innocent blood. Hey, Cain against Abel. Why did Cain kill Abel? Well, because he could, and he was jealous of him. And the Lord went to him beforehand and said, hey, why do you look so gloomy? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But sin is crouching at your door and desires to devour you. And he still went on and killed his brother Abel. What does that tell you? 
Folks, glorifying self leads to destruction. Wicked plans, always doing something against what the Word of God would say and creating issues within the body. And folks, we have had that in this very body. We all have been a version of discord in one way or another. But we had some go to the extreme that we've had to do church discipline and remove them. And I will tell you to this day, there are people that still have a struggle with that because I had one brother say, I still don't understand how that helps them. I have to tell you, sometimes we're just not going to understand it and we just need to be obedient to what God says. Even if it hurts in our flesh, we just have to be obedient to what God says. He's very serious about anyone that creates discord, where they're putting people against each other and groups upon groups, and this is what was happening. And so to the degree we're willing to accept that, to the degree shows us whether, how obedient we want to be towards God in that particular situation. All discord is hated by God. Hated. As I said before, it's an abomination. It turns God's stomach. And if a person has repented and seeking a change hard to do differently, what does verse 15 tell us? Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant, and he will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. That's scary. That's someone who persists and persists and persists. And they've been warned, they've been warned, they've been warned. And then all of a sudden, in an instant, disaster will overtake them and there will be no remedy for them. That should make the hairs on your arms jump up. Because we do not want to move in that direction. Amen? So what's the remedy? What is the remedy? Well, the remedy is what I mentioned before, Colossians 3.16, let the word dwell in you richly. That means we are to constantly be in the word of God so we can have a greater understanding of what he, of what he wants us to do. Ephesians 5.18, be drunk with the spirit. We want the spirit to be alive in us. That means, and we want to pray. So we want to pray that the spirit of God would speak to us and we would know it's from them. And we want to pray for a desire to dwell in the word of God so we can seek and confirm the direction we think that we're supposed to go in. Pray, confirm, and then actually be obedient and walk it out. We want to pray for that. That whether or not we feel good about it or not, we trust in the very word of God and we just are obedient to it. So we pray, we confirm in the word of God, and then we ask for a heart of obedience. That's what we do. So, all of these things, folks, that we talked about, so is discord. Money, giving out loans to people the wrong way and not really taking a deeper dive in their life, it sets a bad example for the body. You sow discord with your example. Sluggardness. A sleepy, sluggard, lazy Christian affects everyone else in the body as well. With your words, with your actions of how you pursue the word of God to know truth for your brother and sister. So now you lead them astray. You sow discord. And then there's direct part of it that he shows us with the haughty eyes and the lying tongue. 
hands that shed innocent blood, and so on. It all sows discord. So we have godly wisdom for godly living that glorifies the Jesus in us. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you.
I know in my brokenness it's easy to talk about it and then go back out.